All right, so I know that most of you may not admit this, but y'all listened to Bieber and you liked it. You did. You don't have to, you don't have to lie, man. This is, this is, we're in a safe place here. We're in a safe place. We're being honest. Let's all just be real about that. I mean, back in the day, I was singing Baby, Baby too. I mean, I get it. I get it. I was there. It's good? No, it's not good yet. <clears throat> One of the songs that stood out to me recently that the Beebmeister did, that's, that's how I know him. We're, we're good friends. One of the songs that he did recently stood out to me. Here's how it goes. Everybody knows my name now, but something about it still feels strange. Like looking in the mirror, trying to steady yourself, and seeing somebody else. And everything is not the same now. It feels like all our lives have changed. Maybe when I'm older, it'll all calm down, but it's killing me now. And then he goes into this powerful chorus, which, I mean, yeah, he, he curses. So if you know the song, you probably shouldn't have been listening to it in the first place. But uh, just to give you a sense of what he's, he's going through here, he says this in the chorus. He says, what if you had it all, but nobody to call? Maybe then you'd know me, because I've had everything but no one's listening, and that's just really lonely. <laughs> I'm so lonely, lonely. La, uh, uh, lonely. He goes, so he goes on to sing it. And I, I, was, I was listening to the song. I'm like, that's Solomon right there. That's King Solomon. He's like, I, I had everything, and I realized everything's vanity. It's so crazy to, to, to talk to someone in 2020, I mean, listening to a song, that is, and, and realize that Bieber's saying the same thing, that the Bible says, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, in, in the reign of King Solomon, who knew what it was to have everything, to, to have a, a world at his fingertips, to be as wealthy, if not more wealthy, than Bieber. In fact, by some estimates, Solomon was a billionaire in modern standards, uh, and still have that sense of everything's vanity under the sun. There's one thing, though, that Bieber brings to our attention that I want you to pay attention to. And he says, look, I had everything but I didn't have anyone. I had everything, but I didn't have anyone. And, and what he talks about is something that is endemic to your generation. In fact, by most accounts, uh, the, the current stats say that four out of 10 of you are suffering through an intense bout of loneliness, that feeling of uh, separation and isolation from people, your age demographic. And, and if you look at different studies, some will say 16 to 24, 18 to 22, but really they're talking about your age group. And they're saying ever since 2012, all the way to the latest studies that happened a couple years ago, they're saying that your age demographic is rapidly increasing in their experience of feeling lonely. So when Bieber says, I'm so lonely, you all said, yeah, me too. At least four out of 10 of you. And in fact, by most standards, they're suggesting that this trajectory is not slowing down and that you're still likely to experience this sense of loneliness one way, shape, or form uh, sooner or later. And there's a lot of reasons why they think this is. Some people are responding to this, this trend uh, in, in several ways. And one of the people that is responding to this uh, is an influencer of sorts. And one of his suggestions is, you know what we need to do? We need to develop uh, relational minimalism. If your relationship with someone doesn't spark joy, well, then cut them out. And it's the Marie Kondo thing, right? You know, it's the, what do you call it? The simplicity of cleaning or whatever she calls it. Anyway, 
Uh, and it's a real thing. This guy promotes it as a serious consideration. Now, this guy that talks about it in particular, who popularized the term, is someone who subscribes to the, the lifestyle of simplicity. You don't, don't buy a lot of stuff, have one pair of shoes, one pair of socks, that kind of thing. Uh, but he talks about not only having a minimalistic approach in his financial and his material possessions, but also in his relational interactions. In other words, if you offend me and you don't spark joy in my life, and when I see you, you bring me down, well, then I'm just going to give you the kibosh. I don't need you anymore. You don't spark joy. Now, a lot of people see not only stuff in consumeristic terms, but now we're starting to see relationships in consumeristic terms. We see one another as objects either for or against our happiness. And if you don't make me happy, if you don't spark joy in my life, well, then you're out. And we wonder, in part, why loneliness is on the incline. Well, as your youth pastor, I want to help you think through this. You're either experiencing it, you're one of the four and ten right now, uh, you know someone who's experiencing it, or you are going to experience it. Now, let me just give you full, uh, a full disclosure here. What I'm going to share with you tonight is not the bulletproof information that's going to protect you from all loneliness. In fact, there's lots of figures in scripture who resonate with that sense of loneliness. What I, what I will tell you, though, is that what you learn tonight will prepare you to interact with loneliness in a productive way, to know how to talk to yourself, to know how to talk to others, and ultimately how to find a path out of it. Because I do have some very practical su suggestions, applications, and my last point. But the first two points, we're going to have to build some, uh, some scaffolding. We're going to have to build some foundations from, from which we can understand why do we go through loneliness and how do we respond to it. Okay, you're going to go through it. You know someone is going through it or, uh, or you're going through it right now. Let's understand point number one, why we experience loneliness in the first place. Now, if you, if you know your Bible, it shouldn't surprise you that uh, I'm going to go to a very familiar text for you. So I want you to get your Bible ready in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you know your Bible, you know Genesis 3 is where we experience the fall of mankind, the fall. We're going to get there in a second. Get there, get ready. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be headed. Well, while you do that, I want to bring to your attention a few reasons why people today uh, say that we experience loneliness. Most secular resources will point to you to a few different factors, but I found this particular article to summarize it quite well. One of the reasons you're going to experience loneliness is because uh, you, you experience a loss of a loved one or someone uh, to which you have a strong attachment. So mom, dad, brother, sister, you know, someone that's close to you, they die, and therefore you feel lonely. That's an obvious one. There's one reason you might ex experience loneliness. Uh, another reason you might experience loneliness, according to, to secular sources, is a feeling of being excluded from others, such as peers, family, or a community. Now, this is probably the one that most resonates with you. This is the one that most often you're, you're going to refer to when you say, I feel lonely. Well, why? Well, I feel detached from my peers. I don't feel like I'm being included. I feel like I'm on the outside and everyone else, everyone else on the inside is having a great time. I'm looking and trying to figure out how to get in, and they won't allow me to be part of that. Here's another one, and this is not a reason more than it is an explanation of the experience of loneliness. They, they say in point three here, loneliness does not necessarily mean being actually physically alone. It's the feeling of aloneness even in the presence of others, meaning right now you might be saying, yeah, I, that's exactly where I'm at. I feel alone even though there's 150 people around me that I could actually touch and you know, say hello to. I still feel alone. And they say, yeah, that's part of the experience here. Loneliness is a perceived individual experience. There is a sense of detachment, alienation, and isolation. That's helpful. 
uh, secular science, psychological science. I mean, the sciences are helpful in helping us to say, okay, what are some of the main reasons why we go through these seasons? But it doesn't go far enough. And in fact, when you go type in stuff on Instagram or TikTok and you're trying to find people to help you uh, to, to, to get out of funky seasons, you're always going to find someone who's going to say, yeah, here's the reasons why and here's a few ways that you can do this. You know, have a gratitude journal. Uh, call up an old friend and, and meet them in person. Have a coffee. Those are, those are great, great suggestions. I'm all for most of that. However, any answer to the problem of loneliness that doesn't address this next thing is going to sell you short. It's going to say, here's a band-aid for the gaping cancer in your soul. Here, take this. It's going to be fine. Oh, you have your, your limb is falling off. Here's some Tylenol, 200 milligrams. Take that. You'll feel fine. Right? That, that's, what, that's what this is saying right here. We're going to try to medicate your pain by giving you all these pop solutions. And they're fine as far as they go. But you and I have to recognize that the primary reason you are going to suffer the feeling of loneliness is not because of a death of a loved one, although that's part of it, or low self-esteem, although that might be part of it, or not getting into your favorite college or, or whatever. Let's look at Genesis 3 and understand what the circumstances are that surround our, our feelings of loneliness. Genesis chapter 3. This is not going to be on the screen, so you're going to need your Bible in front of you. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 7. This is just after Adam and Eve take a bite of the forbidden fruit. God says, don't eat this. Um, they say, we're going to do that anyway because this snake told us to eat it, and so we did. Verse 7. Then, after they ate the fruit... The eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened. doesn't mean that they were closing their eyes. It meant that they saw something that they didn't see before. Once they sinned, they were now made aware of something about themselves and their surroundings that they previously did not know. And here's what they knew. They knew that they were, say it out loud, naked. How many times have you said the word naked at church? This might be your first time, but this is biblical. They were naked and they were unashamed, but now they realized, oh no, I'm vulnerable, I'm exposed, and this person across from me that I had all the trust in the world for, I no longer trust. Adam did not protect me. Eve betrayed me. And now they're both looking at each other saying, oh, okay, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm vulnerable. So they're naked. And in response, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so you think about Tarzan and Jane here, right? They're taking care of themselves, trying to protect themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, get this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so not only are they making themselves loincloths and trying to cover themselves with the fig leaves, they, when they hear God walking into the garden, they go hide behind a tree. So it's not just that this was enough. They went and hid behind a tree in order to remove themselves from the presence of God. They're terrified of him. Now, uh, their relationship with him has been obstructed. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, said to him, where are you? Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to him, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, this is Eve's fault. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done, Eve? 
Eve said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So now the Lord God's going to say, okay, based on this information, and he saw this all, he wasn't asking them to give him information that he didn't already know. He's inviting them to talk to him, explain the problem. It's like when mom and dad walk in the room and you're caught red-handed, like, what are you doing? They know what you're doing. They're not asking you an actual question. They're giving you a chance to say, well, I, whatever, whatever you're doing. I did this thing. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? God's offering them an olive branch, even before anything happens, for them to say, here's what we did. We're so sorry. Can you help us fix this problem that we made for ourselves? They don't do that. Um, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. A serpent has no one to blame, so he's just there eating dust. But now God's going to respond to this situation and say, okay, based on what just happened, I am now going to respond to you by issuing curses. Not curses like God's cussing at them, but curses as in here's the consequence to your rebellion against me. This is called the fall. It's called the fall because man fell from his high station as being God's chosen vessels to represent him. They're meant to be... Uh, figures that represented God in all creation, but now they fell from that station, and God now responds with curses upon them. Here's what he says in verse 14. 14. First talk to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, there's going to be bitterness and rivalry between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring shall bruise your head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. There's a veiled promise of protection in there, and we'll get to that in a second. Verse 16, he says to Eve now, Eve, I'm going to surely multiply your pain in childbearing. We have a couple women who are about ready to give birth, and there might be induced. And it's going to be worse for them, but this is part of the fall. God says, because you've sinned, Eve, all of your daughters forevermore are going to feel pain when you take a baby and shove it out your downsides. That's the result. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what he's saying there is essentially, look, you're going to desire to rule over him. You're going to desire to rule over your husband, but he's going to rule over you and not necessarily in a good way. He's he's already, uh, God's telling them, look, there's going to be friction and there's going to be difficulty in your relationship with one another. Now he talks to Adam. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, that is, with hard, laborious, difficult labor, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay. In all of this, here's what I need you to understand. The cataclysmic event of the fall, Adam and Eve falling down from their high station, resulted in shockwaves of relational conflict. Let me point them out to you. The first reason we experience loneliness is, first of all, because while you were made to know God, the fall alienated you from God. You were made, Adam and Eve, were made to know and love God. And you'll notice the first thing they do after hiding themselves from one another is to, God's coming, let's run from God. 
And they do this rightly. They should be afraid of God because they are sinners. They rebelled against him. They shook their fists and they did their own thing. And so even though God made you, and this is true for every single one of you, I'm not just talking to Christians here, non-Christians, God made you to be in communion with him and to be relationally connected deeply, thrivingly with God. The problem with that is that sin entered in and ruined that relationship. Isaiah 59.2 says that your sin separates you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear or see you. It's not that God is invisible to you. It's that sin entered in and destroyed your relationship with God. So one of the reasons you feel lonely is because you are lonely. You actually are lonely isolated, detached, and estranged from God. Sin did this to you. You chose sin. You gave in to sin. You cooperate with sin. And so your feelings of loneliness could be, and in fact, if you're not a Christian, I know are, in fact, the reason why you feel alone. Because while you were made for God, sin entered in and destroyed, severed our perfect relationship with God. And now today, For most of us, you know the feeling of having this yearning, this desire of like, man, I want something that nothing in this world so far has satisfied. I've drank, I smoked, I tried this thing and that thing, I've tried girls, I've tried boys, I've tried all these different kinds of pleasures, and nothing is quite meeting my needs. And that's why C.S. Lewis says something like this. If there's something in the world, uh, if there's, rather, if if we find ourselves uh, with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You were made for really another person, not each other necessarily. You're made first and foremost for God. So one of the reasons you experience loneliness is because you are. You've been estranged and isolated from God. The second reason you experience loneliness is because you were made to know others, but the fall scared you. Now here's what I know for a fact about you. You are terrified of being exposed by people that know you. You are terrified of, of, of being seen for who you really are, which is why Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is they hide from each other, right? They fig leaves and loincloths are saying, don't look at me. Turn your gaze away because you are scary. I'm terrified of you. I don't trust you. And now we're isolated and estranged because of the sin that we both committed. We're both sinners and now neither one of us are trustworthy. We therefore hide and cover ourselves with fig leaves to avoid rejection. Here's what I mean by that. You can sometimes, if you're honest, be honest with me, be honest with yourselves, and I'll I'll tell you, in high school, I put on different personalities, different identities that fit the moment. Like, oh, I think these people will like me if I'm more energetic and more outgoing. Or I think these smart kids will like me if I use big words and I sound like I know what I'm talking about and I pretend to be, you know, a little smarter than I happen to be. All of us possess this inherent ability to be chameleons in our environment because we're trying so desperately to receive that affection and that connection and that acceptance from people while at the very same time we're saying, don't look at me, don't talk to me, don't, don't, don't know me that well. If you knew who I really was, I'm afraid you wouldn't like me and you would run away from me. That's a condition of the fall. One of the reasons you feel lonely is because you're hiding from other people. You're hiding from other image bearers because you don't trust them and they don't trust you. This is one of the reasons you feel lonely. The spiritual diagnosis for us is that we are separated from God and we're separated from people. This is awful news. 
if we just say do a gratitude journal, if we just say, you know, uh, take an old friend out to coffee, that's helpful, but you're missing the point. The deepest yearning of your soul and mind is to know God deeply, intimately, and to know each other deeply and intimately. But sin, both from our forefather Adam and our own chosen sin, separates us, isolates us, and makes us lonely. Well, that's an exciting thing. Wearing a loincloth and a fig leaf. This is what a fig leaf looks like. Big. Need something to cover yourself with. What you'd use to cover your, over your real identity. Now, this is interesting because Adam and Eve used creation to hide. Now, let me try to paint a picture here. Think about this. God made the world for them. He said, look, go hang out in the garden, be naked, be, be, mom, be a mom and dad, do your thing. Let creation foster and contribute to relational intimacy with one another and with me, your God. Remember, God's walking in the garden. He, creation is a conduit of their relational intimacy. Does that make sense? Uh, creation is meant to facilitate and grow their relational connection. So in the garden, God would commune with them and talk with them. I don't know what it was like, but God was there in the garden with them. And then Adam and Eve, they would hang out in the garden together. And I'm sure they would look around and see the beauty of it, the majesty, and say, wow, this is awesome. And then they, you know, they're enjoying that relational connection. And creation was made by God to foster that, to contribute to that richness in their connection until the fall. And you remember what he says to Adam, the ground is going to now start bearing thorns and thistles. And not only that, it's going to be hard for you to use creation the way it was intended. So not only do you have relational disconnection with God, not only do you have relational disconnection with others, but creation that was made to support these goals of relational connectivity are now crippled. The curse cripples creation and makes it really hard for creation to do its job. Does that make sense? Are you tracking me on that? That last, that, that sub, sub point creation, not uh, making it easy for us to connect well? Give me a head nod or, an, or a head shake. Okay, or nothing at all. I can see you. You know, this is not TV. I can see you. You get what I'm saying or no, I don't get what you're saying. Okay, thank you. I saw most of your heads up and down. I'm going to assume you're tracking me. Okay, so creation now is working against us. Creation now doesn't help us connect with God, and many times it can hinder our connection with God. Creation now doesn't help us connect with one another. Often it hurts our connection with one another. L let me help draw a couple of illustrations. We already talked about being in labor. Uh, labor uh, fosters a connection with a baby that is also super-duper difficult and hard to go through and painful. Um, Creation, and by creation, in this case, I mean the physical body. That makes it hard. Uh, thorns and thistles. Uh, the plants uh, now possess uh, spikes, and, as, and, and if, you, if you try to get a rose without trimming off the, the, the spiky things, I don't want to get all technical. Uh, the spiky thing, uh, you can hurt yourself. Uh, animals, animals aren't friendly all the time. They might want to eat you. In fact, some of them do successfully eat you. And of course, one of the biggest factors, your body dies, your eyes get old, your, your hair falls out, it thins, uh, you gain more weight as you get older, and it's harder to, to stay healthy and strong, your teeth start falling out, your skin loses uh, plasticity and suppleness, and you start getting sags and wrinkles and sunspots and all sorts of nasty things. I'll, I'll stop there, but you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Not because you experience it, but older people do. So your body ages. The cursed creation begins to break down, and you get to experience this in little parts right now, but probably in larger parts as you get older. Creation, not only that, but if you take a look at 2021, everyone in this room, maybe save a few people, has a smartphone, right? And the smartphone, which used to be a promised, uh, a promised Messiah in bringing people together, now does, and many times, the exact opposite. This image is something I see all the time. Like friends hanging out, and they're hanging out like this. And granted, I know it's pauses between interactions, and sometimes it's during occasions where it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. We're just hanging out. Um, but the phone becomes, the, the creation becomes the very thing distracting you from connecting with other people. And if I were to ask you, what are you doing on your phone? Oh, I'm updating my Insta. Oh, I'm texting someone back. Well, what about the people in front of you? I like to say people over pixels uh, because some people are always on their phones and they're just not paying attention to the real people in front of them. So I said, people over pixels. That makes more sense. Uh, but creation, the phone, which is a good and godly thing for the most part, um, is being utilized to obstruct relationship and not foster it. The very same phone that you have in your, uh, in your hand, the device, or the iPad, the computer, that has access to the Bible in every single language, period, for the most part. You have study tools and websites with free commentaries, and some of the people that have their machines will use those very same creational tools to access bad websites, websites that are inappropriate. Let's just say it like that. Creation now, instead of fostering connection, fosters distraction because it's cursed. That's the problem in a nutshell. You're lonely because you are lonely. You're disconnected with God, disconnected with people, disconnected from creation. There is a, a cognitive dissonance there. However, as I said, there is a promise. Genesis 3.15, when, when, when Adam is, or rather, when God is talking to Eve, he says, look, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Sorry, he's talking to the snake, talking to the serpent, the devil. He says, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and he and you shall bruise his heel. He's promising that in the future, there's going to be someone who comes and crushes the head of the serpent. This is a veiled reference to what Jesus would ultimately do when he comes 2,000 years later to save humanity, crushing the head of the enemy. This is a veiled promise to that. So how does this actually get accomplished? Now I'm going to have you turn your Bibles over to the New Testament. We're only going to look at one verse, Matthew 27, verse 46. Is that what I have there? Yeah, 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. This is one of the uh, last things Jesus says on the cross, and it's devastating. When Jesus utters these words, it is, it is something uh, earth-shaking. It's the thing that's like, well, how can this even possibly happen? But it happens, and it's crushing. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 27, verse 46. At about the ninth hour, which is... Uh, I believe 12 o'clock, give or take. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, uh, lemma sabachthani. This is Aramaic. This is the language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken. And so on the cross, hanging there, he utters these devastating words. He says, my God, my God, why have you, important word there, forsaken me? Let me translate it to, to English in a different way. My God, my God, why have you left me lonely? Why have you turned away? Why have you abandoned me and deserted me to myself? Jesus does something that 
maybe some of us don't really recognize here. When Jesus is on the cross, he is taking on our alienation from God. As he's suffering on the cross, God is pouring out his wrath upon him. And what God does, God the Father, is he detaches from Jesus in some way that I cannot explain. He detaches, isolates, abandons, and even crushes Jesus all at the same time. And Jesus, in a moment of despair, says, why are you forsaking me? Why? And Jesus knows why. This is not Jesus saying, I don't know what's happening here. He knows full well what's happening. He is taking on the sin of the world by taking on the isolation that we deserve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. Jesus is now saying, look, I'm taking on that separation on myself by being brutally murdered by his very own creation. Like, how ironic would it be if Steve Jobs died because someone took an iPhone and beat him to death with it? This is the irony, the cruel, tragic irony of the cross because the very creation that Jesus spoke into existence and upholds by the word of his power, present tense, is the very thing that is used to murder him. The fingertips that he developed in the womb are the same fingertips that clutch the hammer that nail the nails into his hands. The wood that he spoke into existence is the very same wood that hangs him on the tree, right? That hangs him on the cross. Jesus goes through all of this in order to bridge the gap of separation between God and man and man and each other, man and woman and even man in creation. So let's understand how Jesus then answers your loneliness. This is, this is going to be hopefully a quick but very practical approach to this. You need to understand this. The fall separates God, man, creation. Jesus' answer on the cross is he does something remarkable by starting to reverse that entire process. You guys have probably seen things like that. Jesus is the answer. There's stickers that say, Jesus is the answer. If you go into some seedy bathrooms, that you might see that written on the walls. Jesus is the answer. Um, you might see things like this on Facebook or Instagram. Whatever's troubling you, Jesus is the answer. Uh, I saw one person post this. Uh, Jesus is the answer. Now, what's the question? One of my students uh, from a long time ago, um, he left the faith, and, and he was open about that. But he said to me, look, Rod, I understand Jesus is the answer. He says, but I've never understood what he's the answer to. I don't get why he's necessary uh, when my life seems pretty good, all, all things considered. Like I've got science, and I've got money, and I've got this. Why is Jesus the answer? Now, it's easy for you to be uh, misled by this, because when we say things like this, these Christian platitudes, it's easy to not be clear about this. When we say Jesus is the answer, what are we saying he's the answer to? What's he providing an answer for? And this is where we need to be clear. Jesus answers many things, but when it comes to your loneliness, Jesus answers your loneliness first and foremost by taking on guilt and shame, bringing us to God. Jesus, first and foremost, in his work on the cross, is remedying the problem, the biggest problem that we have, that we are sinners and that we deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be estranged from him, and we deserve to be lifted on a cross and naked, bloodied, and bruised, and murdered. But Jesus goes there in our place in order to create a pathway for us to return to our right relationship with God. Jesus has his flesh flayed. I know if you guys, you guys probably saw that, uh, the passion, right? Where Jesus uh, and the passion, he's, he's, he's being flogged and you see his back being flayed open, his skin being ripped from sinew to sinew and you see his blood, you know, he's gasping for air because he can't breathe. Probably a pretty accurate dis- depiction. But here's the interesting thing. Scripture says that when his, his body was being torn to pieces, when his skin was being ripped, 
and, and the skin cells, you know, falling off of his back as the blood trickles down, when that ripping is taking place and he's being even lifted on a cross, you have to understand that Scripture is not seeing it merely as a physical event. And in fact, that's why you have the curtain of the temple torn in two. When Jesus says, it is finished, the curtain tears from top to bottom. And this is the temple uh, that the Israelites would go to to offer sacrifices. The temple that has likely been referenced in this verse I'm going to show you is likely the curtain that separates the, most, uh, the holy of holies from the most holy place. In other words, this curtain separated the special sanctuary of God where the high priest would go only once a year. This is the kind of place that you can't go ever if you're an average Israelite. You'd have to only let the, the, the high priest go, and he would go only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But here's what Hebrews 10, 19 and 22 says. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we, have a, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the holy of holies, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so what you have in Jesus here, his flesh is being torn to shreds so that we can have full access again to God the Father. You might feel lonely and say, I feel disconnected from God. I feel disconnected from people. But here's the reality. Jesus paid a price on the cross that guarantees you access to God no matter what you are feeling. You could have had an amazing week as a Christian. You read your Bible every single day. You prayed uh, every day and you prayed for at least 15 minutes. You're having a rock star week. A, you still need Jesus. And B, Jesus is ready to receive you with arms wide open because he paid the price for you to access and approach God. If you're having the worst week of your life, and maybe, like Peter, maybe you cursed God and you betrayed him in front of your friends who they knew you were a Christian, but you still you, you, you gave them this sense that you were ashamed of your Jesus and you were ashamed of your church and you were ashamed of all the stuff that they say about you. And so you deny Jesus and you say, oh man, I'm not into that stuff and bleep, 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 bleep. Jesus is ready to receive even you because his death on the cross remedies the gap. His death on the cross is what brings us together with the Father and that separation is insoluble. It is something that cannot be broken. Once you trust Christ, turning to him in repentance and faith, your relationship with him is unbreakable. Why? Well, because Jesus on the cross saves that, saves us, connects us. That's step one. Jesus takes on our sin, our guilt, our shame, bringing us to God. Our text says this. Ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you can't see this. This is not in an immediate text. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he's not only fixing our issue with God, he's also fixing our issue with each other. When Jesus is on the cross, he is telling the truth about every single one of you. He's not on the cross saying, Lord, uh, I'm dying for these really nice, sweet people, these sweet kids, the True North students in 2021. They're such good kids, and I'm just going to die for them because they're such sweet, nice, righteous people. He says the opposite. In fact, when Jesus goes on the cross and he suffers his bloody, brutal, evil, disgusting death, he is telling the worst about you. He is telling on you in ways that, are, that ought to embarrass and shame you. In fact, that's why the hymn says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? No, we're, I'm not going to sing it for you. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes I think about it and it causes me to, uh, to shudder, tremble, tremble. It causes me to tremble. 
because we look at that and we imagine that and we realize we're the reason he's there. Our sin is what puts Jesus on the cross. Your sin is so grievous, so disgusting, so terrible, so terrifying that it warrants the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the spotless Lamb, to be mercilessly beaten down to a bloody pulp and then hung on a cross in order to suffer shame and humiliation that you deserve. The cross told the truth about you. And therefore, Jesus' cross, when we repent and trust him, provides the relational context for us to be real with each other. Your small groups don't have to be a charade where you're just pretending for everyone to be happy and awesome and my life is amazing and I've never sinned once this week. You know, no. Jesus tells the truth about you on the cross. You're broken, you need a savior, and here I am for you, ready to receive you. The cross told the truth on you. I don't know if you've ever smelled a rotting carcass, but if you've ever had the pleasure of smelling a rotting dead animal or, God forbid, a human, but nevertheless, putrid smell, right? Um, decomposing flesh is not a pleasant aroma. You might get a little whiff of it. If the meat goes bad in your refrigerator, you pull out the bologna. It's like, oh, 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 that's not good bologna anymore. Bologna. Come on. You guys have the good stuff. You guys have the ham, right? <laughs> bologna is my old stuff. Anyway, rotting carcass. Let me, let me ask you. If... <laughs> If, if I were to tell you, hey, uh, guys, there's a, there's a rotting pig out in front of 120 West. Can you take care of that smell? Like, can you take care of that? Uh, I'm guessing that you guys aren't going to go over there and be like, oh, I got some Axe body spray. <laughs> it's not going to fix it, right? It's not going to fix it. You have to get rid of the rotting carcass. You have to deal with it. You burn it or do something. You destroy it. You, you can't fix it with some Axe body spray. When you and I pretend like we have it all together, it's like we're taking the, the, the junior high boy Axe body spray. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't have any sin to deal with. I'm good, man. I'm good. All the while, your sinful rotting carcass is coming through loud and clear. And to that, Jesus would say, look, Jesus said, I came to call not the healthy, but the sick. I didn't come to talk to people who think they have it all together. I came to talk to people who know that they're sick and they need healing. The cross tells the truth about you. You are a sinner. You need a savior. God's a good, gracious savior. He wants to bridge the gap between you and God and also with one another. Let me tell you this. Your most fulfilling relationships, your most satisfying relationships are not going to be those people that you have this superficial relationship with. They're going to be the people that know stuff about you, that know even the secret things that you don't share with people. Now, you don't tell everybody. I'm not asking you to put this on your Instagram and be like, hey, guys, here's the way I sin. No. <laughs> I am telling you, though, that um, if you are a Christian, you have context to have real, deep, meaningful connections with other Christians who will love you because they've been loved by God. We love because he first loved us. If you're lonely, step one, make sure you're right with God. Make sure your relationship with God is taken care of. Step two, Talk to people with honesty. Be real. Recognize the cross told the truth on you. You're a rotting carcass who needs a savior. Beautiful thing is that when you come to Christ, you're no longer a rotting carcass. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says that you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are new in Christ. Embrace that. One more thing here. When Jesus goes to the cross and he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also does one more thing. He inaugurates a change that will endure um, and I'm excited about this one. In fact, one of the things I'm excited about is Christmas. Christmas is almost here. I can't wait. This is, okay, yes, we can clap for that. 
Sometimes you guys surprise me. I'm like, okay, I guess we're clapping about Christmas, which is great. It's great. Christmas is close, and one of the songs that I love singing at Christmas is Joy to the World, and Joy to the World has this famous line that maybe you haven't thought much about. It says, uh, uh, no more let sin and sorrows grow. Okay, so don't, hey, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't let your sin and your sorrow remain. Don't let them grow. Instead, um, no, not instead. He says, nor thorns infest the ground. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Thorns, sorrow, sin. Are you making some connections here? He says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This is talking about the reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. The song is singing joy to the world because Jesus comes to begin to undo all that was broken. God and man, man and man, and now creation. How does he do this? Well, he does this at his resurrection. He dominates his physical flesh and says, no, I'm going to bring it back to life. It's going to be a new flesh. It's going to be uh, made uh, alive with the spirit. It's going to be uh, infused with new properties. It's going to be reset back to the manufacturer's specifications. It's going to be brand new. Jesus begins reversing the curse back in Genesis 3 by his resurrection. What that means then is that even though creation still poses obstacles for us, creation can now be utilized to be a blessing once more, to be useful for connection. The phone that you have that I just lambasted and said, yeah, that's, a, that's a really dangerous tool, that's a good tool when you use it properly. Uh, the, 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 the rooms that were in here, the creation that God has given us to steward are tools now to be wielded to connect once more God and God and man and man. Creation is meant to be stewarded to bring together these relationships. And when Jesus resurrects himself from the dead, he essentially says, all right, guys, time to move the ball forward. The uh, reverse of the curse is now inaugurated. You guys now, until I come back, begin to work together to see people brought together this way and brought together with God this way. Creation has now been restored in part, but yet in the future to be fully fixed no more cancer, no more tears of sadness, no more, uh, no more pain, no more death. That's coming. But he started it now. What that means practically, guys, is that you should consider your interaction with creation. If you're, if you're going through some bouts of loneliness, sometimes uh, one of the best things for you to do is to get outside and work, to do things with your hands, to, to plant a garden, to do something physical, to exert yourself, to go on a run and a hike or something, or to go and, and, and ride sea biscuit at the range or whatever, and to go do things with, <laughs> to go do things with creation that um, anticipates, looks forward to your future connection with creation that will be more deep and more profound than you ever realized could even be possible. Okay, last. Let me give you some super practical advice now on how to go about this. More scripture coming your way, but let me give you the point first. Point number three, we're going to assault loneliness with the weapons of faith and service. We're going to assault loneliness with the weapons of faith and service. And the first passage I'm going to take you to is in Psalm 23, so you can get your Bibles ready there. As I recount to you an illustration that I heard recently, I want you to imagine two people. Both men are terrified of flying, okay? They hate flying. In fact, I know someone really close to me who's super terrified of flying, but these two guys are afraid of flying. Both, though, have to go from New York to London. And so the first man reluctantly buys his plane ticket, and he boards the plane. But he, text, he talks to the other man, and the other man says, you know what? No, man, I, I'm going to, 
I'm going to get a rowboat, and I'm going to row from New York to London. I am 100% confident that I can make it. I will make it. Me and my rowboat, we're going to make it. New York to London, no problem. The first man who gets on the plane says, you know, I don't think I can do that. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm terrified. I, I, I'm confident the plane's going to go down. I'm going to get on this plane, and this Airbus uh, 380 is going to crash in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm going to drown, and it's going to be a horrific death, but I'm going to get on anyway. Like Thomas, he says, well, I might as well go in here so I can die. That's what I'm going to do. So one man gets on the plane. The other man gets in the boat. Both are 100% confident of what's going to happen. The man on the plane is confident the plane's going to crash. The man on the boat is confident he's going to make it to London. Well, of course, the man in the boat, the rowboat, encounters large waves. He's capsized and he drowns. Sad story. The man on the plane, who is 100% sure that the plane would crash, lands safely at the airport in London. You see, both men were entirely confident of the result. They, they had faith, you might say. They had faith in what the outcome would be. You see, what was not important was the strength of their faith, but the object of their faith. Let me put it like this. I, I put it sum, summarily. What makes all the difference is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. That is, when you're going through loneliness, you cannot put your faith in anything other than Jesus Christ himself. The object of your faith, even if it's little, Jesus says. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, itty-bitty, and you say to this mountain, go from here to there, that, that it's going to do it. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole, but his point is, the object of your faith is what has the power, not your faith. It's not your faith that's going to make Jesus say, okay, I guess I'll do the thing you want me to do. It's the object of your faith being reliable. The man in the airplane made it to the airport not because he had the faith. He had no faith. But he got on the plane and he made it anyway because it wasn't the strength of his faith, it was the object. His, his strength was found in the object of his faith. I'm going to ask you to put your faith in God by exercising these two, these two things here. Okay, first, look at Psalm 23, 4 with me. This first practical response. We're just going to look at Psalm 23, verse 4. It says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now realize here, David is writing this. This is the reality. David is saying, this is my situation. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm, I'm, I'm in an area where I'm vulnerable. I can't see anything. I'm concerned about my life. That's the reality. But notice his response. I will fear no evil. So in other words, it doesn't matter where you have me, God. I am choosing to respond with no fear. Why? We see his reality, his response, and now his reason. Why? Well, because you're with me. I don't have to fear because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, the shepherds, the shepherd instruments, they're with me and they bring me comfort. Those are the things that I can rely on and depend upon. Here's my point. You assault loneliness by, first of all, believing and receiving God's promises. Put the object of your faith in your mind, clearly in God himself. He's faithful. He's good. He promises to never leave nor forsake you. Therefore, you in your mind say, the object of my faith is Jesus, that he will never leave me. I might feel alone, but but it does not mean that I actually am alone. I'm trusting God to draw near to me, to be close to me, to be everything I need for life and godliness. Some of you guys know I drive a really, really nice car. 2013 Honda Civic. <laughs> don't get jealous and don't covet, okay? <laughs> this is actually a nicer model. It might not that nice. <laughs> but let's just say, let's just say, 
I came to you and I said, you know, I heard you were strapped. You couldn't afford a car, so I'd like to give you the keys to my vehicle. I'd like to give you my car. Now, if you believe that I was a generous pastor and you're like, oh, man, Pastor Roger's so cool, I, yeah, you would actually still have to do something in response to that, wouldn't you? I'm giving you a gift, and I say, hey, you know what, just come over to my house tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, uh, you know, meet me like 3 o'clock, and I'll give you the keys, sign over the pink slip, and then you could be on your way and go to whatever you're doing. You would still have to say, okay, I'm going to receive that gift. I'm going to have my mom or my dad drive me over to Pastor Rod's house, and then I'm going to sit there. I'm going to have to fill out the paperwork of transfer of ownership, and then I'm going to have to uh, receive the keys. So I'll, get, I'll throw the keys at you, and you catch them. And, you know, it's like that moment of like, oh, this is amazing. Um, all of that requires work on your side. The work of driving to my house. The work of signing the paperwork. The work of catching the keys when I playfully throw them at you. All of that is a work, but no one of you are thinking, oh yeah, I worked for this car. You're not going to go out of my house and be like, yeah, I worked for this car that Pastor Rod gave me. Well, and so what do you mean you worked for Didn't he give it to you? Yeah, but I signed the paperwork. I drove to his house and I caught the keys when he playfully threw them at me. I mean, I worked for this car. No, you're not going to say that, right? That's not sensical. When I tell you, read your Bible, pray, give God worship, I'm not telling you, hey, work for God as though he needs something from you. I'm saying, receive God's grace, mercy, and kindness. Fill your cup, young person. Reading your Bible is like receiving the keys. Opening up to God in prayer is like you driving to God's house and saying, okay, let's hang out and talk. You putting yourself in those positions feels like strenuous work. But it is not the kind of work where you say, man, this is so difficult and hard. I'm not getting anything out of it. This is the way, this is the way God blesses you. So I use the term receive, no, believe and receive. To, if you believe me, you have to drive to my house, right? And then if you're going to receive my car, you have to sign the transfer of ownership. You have to take my keys. Uh, those are acts of service in some way. You're, you're responding to me, but they're not works. So here's what I'm getting at. Believing and receiving God's promises. I know I sound like a prosperity preacher, but they don't get to have this language. This is our language. This is ours. I'm taking it back. Believing and receiving God's promises. The promise in particular, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says, I will never leave nor forsake you. God makes a lot of promises to you, young person. Your job is to know those promises, to believe them, receive them, and act upon them. Assault loneliness, first and foremost, by believing and receiving God's promises. Secondly, Turn one more time. This is our last text for the evening. Proverbs 11, 24, 25. Proverbs are not promises. You should know that as I say this. Proverbs are truisms, uh, observations about life that generally prove to be true. Wisdom of God. Here's what it says. Proverbs 11, 24, 25. Uh, one gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Pause there for a second and recognize that scripture is noting that there are people who seem to give and give and give, and yet, mysteriously, they seem to also increase a whole lot more. Their generosity is not resulting in scarcity. Their generosity is resulting in overflow, abundance. He continues, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. This is incredible. This is beautiful. This is simple. 
What Scripture is telling you is if, if you're going through a season of loneliness, one of the ways that you dig yourself out of that pit by God's grace is to direct the attention away from you and seek to give radically to others. Now, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. In fact, if you just look at the life of Jesus, you might remember that the king of the earth, the one who made feet, cleans feet. And he also cleans Judas's feet. He does this, and, and, and Paul comments on this uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 20. He says, or actually Peter said to, to Paul says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus is about to go die on the cross for them. And at the same time, he's like, now I'm going to serve you. You would think, right, if, if this is you, for instance, if you, tomorrow, your friends are like, hey, we're going to go on a road trip to Texas, and we elected you as the driver. Okay, you're driving for 18 hours. Tonight, you might be a little more tempted to be like, you know what, tonight, guys, if, can you bring me my dinner? Just bring my dinner to me. And you know, I'm really thirsty, I'm parched. Can someone get me a Coke? Because look, I'm driving tomorrow, 18 hours. You should serve me right now. Right? I, I deserve some, some treatment, some, some kindness. And you might ask one of your friends, like, hey, can you rub my shoulders? They're feeling a little tense right now. Uh, and can someone get J-Lo? I'd love for him to sing me a worship song. Like, you're going to want people to, to serve you because like, oh, tomorrow I'm given 18 hours of my driving time. I, I deserve this. Jesus does the polar opposite. In a few hours from this scene, he's going to go to the cross and suffer in ways that we will never experience because of his salvation for us. But he doesn't say, hey, disciples, you go make my bed. You go put things together for me. He says, no, I'm going to tie an apron around my waist. I'm going to roll up my, my dress thing. It's not a dress. It's a something. Anyway, this is the point. <laughs> the tunic, thank you. He rolls up his tunic, and then he washes grown men's probably hairy, disgusting feet. He says, I've done this for you as an example. I've done this to show you that just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He displays this in action-oriented ways. So if you're going to take care of your loneliness, first of all, believe and receive God's promises. But second, initiate radical generosity toward others. What a profound thought. Initiate radical generosity toward others. Some people might be tempted to say, oh, this sounds like karma. You know, it's that whole sense of uh, you get what you give. Uh, karma is, according to this definition, a Hinduistic and Buddhistic concept. The sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. Let me just tell you right now, karma is not Christian. <laughs> you didn't already catch that. Um, this passage is not about karma. This is about God saying, look, this is how I designed the world to work, and when you serve others in radically generous ways, generally speaking, People respond to that very positively, not flawlessly, because Jesus did this with excellence, and he kind of got crucified. So there are still the trump card. God may say, you know what, even though you're going to serve people radically and generously, I still hold the cards of your life. You're going to have to trust me that I'm dealing you the hand that you need to play. You want to assault your loneliness, you need to have faith in God and what he said about you, what he said to you, and then that needs to free you up to radically, generously serve others. Here are a few ways to do that. One of the best ways you can do that, you're talking to people, look them in the eye and listen to what they say without looking at your phone, without letting the buzz or the, t or the beep or whatever it is that your phone makes the sound, without letting that get in the way of you and that person. Being radically generous with your attention is one of the best ways that you can love somebody. 
many more options for that, and I want you to spend time thinking that through tonight in your small groups. But there you go, dealing with loneliness. I keep seeing posts about you guys getting your licenses. I'm concerned. I get nervous thinking that I'm, as I'm driving down PDV, that maybe you're on the same road. <laughs> I think, is my insurance paid up? Is my seatbelt on? Have I prayed today? <laughs> well, I want to give you one driving tip. One driving tip. When the lights on your dashboard go up, they're not badges or awards. <laughs> They're not, your, your car's not rewarding you for driving so many miles. In fact, when you see these lights on the dashboard, they, they mean that there's something wrong with the car or some maintenance that needs to be scheduled. You need to do something with your car, otherwise your car's going to break down. Loneliness is a lot like an indicator on your dashboard. It's saying something's wrong, and you need to address it. When, when you take your car to the mechanic, they're going to look at your tire pressure, your water. You're going to look at, they're going to look at your oil and make sure that your oil's clean and not depleted entirely or not dirty. Um, for the Christian, when you have the warning light of loneliness, the indicators that your pastor and your leader's going to look for is like, okay, what's your relationship with God like right now? What are your relationship with your peers like right now? And what are you doing to be a good steward of creation? How are you interacting with the creation that God has entrusted to you? Tonight, as you spend time in your small groups, I want you to give an attempt I know, I know it's hard in your age group, and not everyone's a Christian. I get that. But to give an attempt to be honest with each other and to talk about it. If you're going through loneliness, now's the time to tell people. And if you're not, um, I would encourage you to sympathize with your brothers and sisters and maybe to learn some things as you prepare, inevitably, to go through your own season of loneliness. Trust God. He's faithful. Give and serve radically and in generous ways, and watch God work wonders in your life. Let's pray.